welcome to Building Boston and Beyond, an educational podcast empowering Massachusetts residents with information, updates surrounding the economic growth of their community, improvements to their neighborhood, and access to resources to enhance their quality of life. From discussions with public officials, businesses, organizations, and change makers, Building Boston and Beyond aims to inform and empower residents to have a voice, support each other, and join the decision-making process in their community. Joining us today on Building Boston and Beyond is former gubernatorial candidate, State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz. A seasoned public official with years on Beacon Hill, she is here to share her vision to support a slate of Democratic candidates dubbed Courage Democrats. These are candidates reflective of the diverse communities here in Massachusetts and who are committed to bringing about transformative change and building power for communities of color. Welcome, Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz. I am thrilled to have you on Building Boston and Beyond today. Let's begin with a brief about yourself, including your path to politics. Oh, all right. That's a... um... (laughs) You could go long on that question. I grew up, Lydia, always moving back and forth between two different worlds. And I think that that has really informed my politics. The daughter of a single mother, you know, multiracial kid growing up in a mostly wealthy, mostly white community where my mom, you know, moved us kind of by her fingernails, right, to just to get the good education that she knew we would get there. My dad is an immigrant to this country from Costa Rica, and he came with 50 bucks in his pocket and a one-way ticket and uh, not a lot of English, but he had the help along the way of some key teachers and librarians and lunch ladies who took an interest in him and helped him along his way. And with their help, he made it not only to college, but he made it to space. And he became this country's first Latino astronaut. My mom, who's a social worker, right? She spent her career helping women and children on the margins of society. And so each of my parents' experiences really taught me about this country's incredible potential and incredible opportunities. But also the only way that we're going to actualize those things is if we really stand together, we organize together, and we fight for our best values. And that has stuck with me my whole life, whether it was, you know, starting out as a teacher in one of the poorest and the least funded school districts in our state, the city of Lynn, where I saw, you know, firsthand the way the divide between have and have not communities really changed the trajectory and and narrowed the trajectory, right, of my students' lives. And then it also stuck with me in my years as a state senator, right? And I'm now coming up on my, it will be 14 years at the end of this year on Beacon Hill. I ran the first time because I see how deeply um, cynical so many people are about government and just the sort of eye roll, right, that so many people have when you talk to them about voting and about being involved in advocacy and the way that people say, you know, you can't trust any of those bums and nothing ever changes here. And wanting to really rebuild, you know, rehab government in, in people's minds and test the theory that, you know, can it really be made to work and serve the interests and the needs of working families? And what I've seen over my 14 years is that on the one hand, we can win big things for our communities, you know, when we organize together. Things like, you know, major overhaul to our K-12 education funding system. We won $1.5 billion for our kids' schools in this state. We've won on criminal justice reform, on police accountability. But I've also seen in that time that we just still have too many people in government who are more concerned with holding on to their power 
rather than doing something with it, you know, and that's maddening for people, right? Like, because most people don't have time to wait for government to just kind of nibble around the edges. And that has really been a a sort of a, a guiding ethic for me in my time on Beacon Hill is to act with urgency because working families are waiting on us, you know, whether it's to fix their kids' schools or to lighten the load of student debt or to make it so that our transportation infrastructure isn't crumbling around us, you know, or for racial justice and equity in our economy. So many things that people have been waiting on for too many years. So that's what this project has been all about for me. I agree. And transparency is just so important. And I think that is part of a a needed movement is to allow people to have a voice and feel included and feel more importantly that their voice matters and they're being heard. That's right. You were a candidate for governor and most recently withdrew. Let's share a little about that. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I want to clarify, my name is still going to be on the ballot. And that's important, Lydia. You know, many, many people across this state worked hard to make sure that we were breaking through an historic barrier. And this is the first time that a woman of color is ever going to appear on the ballot for governor in Massachusetts. Very important. I felt it was important to hold that space and make sure that folks have a choice on their ballot when they go to vote. You know, just like you said about people feeling like they have a place and they have a role in in Mm -hmm. government when you go and show up to vote and there's only one name on there, you know, that makes people say, why do I even come here to do, you know, there's, there's only one person on the ballot. What does it matter that I show up? So I think it's really important that people do have a choice on the ballot. And so I remain on the ballot. Folks are going to have a choice when they fill out their primary election ballot. And there is a lot at stake in this election, right? There are real differences in the paths that we could pursue over the next four years. And so I continue in this work, even though I'm not actively campaigning for governor. You know, that's the announcement that I made last week is that in the two and a half months or so that we have left in the election, primary election season, I don't see a responsible path for us to close the gap that exists between, you know, me and the attorney general in the governor's race. But I always got into this race for governor in the first place for a larger set of goals. It was not just about me and it was not just about, you know, sitting in that governor's chair. It is about accomplishing change for working families. It's about injecting more urgency and courage into our state politics. It's about building power for communities of color. And for those goals, there are other ways that I can still serve those goals and that I can ask my supporters to join me in serving those goals over the next two and a half months. And so I had a choice, you know, am I going to sort of do these Hail Mary passes, you know, in order to get more people to know my name in the governor's race? Or am I going to use that time and that precious energy and the organizing strength that we've built up over the past year on the governor's race to make other moves that are going to build power for communities of color and inject more urgency and courage into our politics? Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's the responsible choice to choose that second path. I announced last week that I'm going to use the remaining time in in the primary election season rather than campaigning for myself to get behind five Courage Democrats, what we're calling them, a slate of five down-ballot candidates running for state representative, running for district attorney in areas across the state that I believe are going to carry this mantle of courage over politics Mm -hmm. and be critical players on the field for the next two years and the next four years. Those five candidates, I just want to give them a shout out because I'm really excited about them. Oh, of course, of course. They are Rasan Hall, who's running for district attorney in Plymouth County. Ricardo Arroyo, who's running for DA here in Suffolk County, Boston and, and the surrounding area. And then three state representative candidates, Sam Montano, who's running here in Boston. Uh, Raul Fernandez, who's running for state rep in Brookline. And Vivian Burchall, who's running for a seat out in the Acton area. And all five of them are folks that I have a great confidence in, not only in their progressive values, which are very strong, 
but in their willingness to stand up and push for those values and fight for those values, not just when it's easy, but when it's hard, Lydia, because those are the moments that are holding us back as a state. You know, we have a democratic supermajority in our state legislature, but we still can't get basic things done like election day registration, right? Which exists in many other states across the country. It's proven, it's tested, it's good for democracy. It's good for young people. It's good for low-income people to increase ballot access. And even in our democratic supermajority, we could not get it passed this year. And that's why I know that it's not just having a D next to your name that matters, right? But are you going to have the courage to stand up and fight for things like this, you know, when the chips are down? Right. No, I agree. No, I commend your movement. It's really a good process. And courage over politics, just it says it right there, to have the courage to say things sometimes that you know won't be appreciated by the public and to support candidates of which you mentioned. You know, and I find that time and time again, it's not so much being comfortable with the general public that I worry about. I mean, like you have to be, you know, you can't please everybody. But I think that people appreciate straightforwardness, you know. I think people can smell a phony a mile away and that voters appreciate someone who's going to be straight with them, who's going to be, you know, tell it like it is, even if they, you know, don't agree 100% of the time. And it's more the culture inside of Beacon Hill that I think does not appreciate that kind of, that kind of courage in the moments and that struggles more with being discomfort. And, you know, what I've said, particularly where racial justice is concerned, you know, we've had a lot of talk over the past two years about a racial reckoning in this country. And, you know, I think we're just starting to scratch the surface of that. But, you know, a reckoning involves discomfort. And I have said on the Senate floor, and I say it in public, I think if we don't collectively feel uncomfortable, and if individual policymakers and people in power don't feel uncomfortable in the work of seeking racial justice, we're not doing it right. You know, there's something fundamentally wrong there because our systems have been built up to create comfort, right, for people in power for so long. And so if we're not feeling uncomfortable, it probably means we're not changing things adequately. Right. No, that's a good point. I'd like to ask you about Roe versus Wade. Mm -hmm. It's a challenging time for women. And what are you doing in the Senate to ensure women continue to have the right to choose? Yeah, it is a really challenging time. We knew this moment was coming, but it, it doesn't make it less devastating. And, you know, it's, it's not just that we knew it was coming since the leak of the Supreme Court decision, you know, some weeks ago, but I think back a few years, you know, as we saw the Supreme Court nomination of Merrick Garland get stolen from Barack Obama, right? We know we know that the court has been going this way, and it's been just such a heartache to watch it happen on our watch, right? Franklin, this is one of the things that reminds me that not all Democrats are created equal, right? Just electing Democrats in Congress, right, doesn't mean that we solved this problem. We need to stand and fight. We need to fight hard when our rights are on the line. Mm -hmm. and not let it get to, you know, such a crisis situation as this. So you asked what we're doing in the Senate here in Massachusetts. There are several things. One is we took a vote in the Senate that I'm very proud of to put legal protections in place in Massachusetts for abortion providers, right? The right to reproductive self-determination and abortion access is enshrined in Massachusetts law. Abortion is still legal in Massachusetts, and I'm confident that it will remain so in Massachusetts. You know, and, and part of the reason for that is that we passed legislation, what was a year so ago, time is such a blur during the pandemic uh, a year or so ago, to make sure that we codified the standard of Roe versus Wade in Massachusetts law so that we would be you know, prepared for this moment. I was proud to vote three times in support of that law, including to override the governor's veto of that law. So we have that legal standard in Massachusetts. We're now laying on top of it legal protections for abortion providers in Massachusetts so that they will not be exposed to legal action from other states, perhaps, right, right. if they are performing medical procedures that are legal in Massachusetts. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the case of for Massachusetts residents, or if there are people coming from other states in order to seek abortion care in Massachusetts, that that is legal for them and those providers would be protected legally. Beyond that, though, Lydia, I think it's so important to say the fight for reproductive justice is not just and it cannot be just about codifying in the law mm-hmm. people's rights. That's an important first step. But just because it says it on paper doesn't mean that people in the real world can access that right. And that's why I always talk about reproductive justice, right? Not just reproductive rights, because, you know, low-income women, women who are, you know, immigrants and perhaps not English uh, speakers, people who can become pregnant, who are transit dependent, right? And who live in parts of the state where we have many parts of the state that are abortion deserts where people can't access the care, even though the right exists on paper. And that is what we have to really keep our focus on, that we're putting in place the funding structures, the transportation access, prescription abortion access, the community health center access all across our state so that people can access these rights and their, their rights that are manifest in real life and not just on paper. No, you've, you've said it. It's about access. It's useless without access. Yeah, it's nice, it's nice for politicians. We can pat ourselves on the back and say, look at that, we wrote a law. Yeah. But if it doesn't actually get to people out in the world, then it's just nice talk. And it's not inclusive. And if not everyone can access it, how useful is it? That's right. And that's why, you know, honestly, this is my 14th year in the Senate. So I've been through 14 budget cycles. And every year that I have been in office, I have made it a priority to fight for the funding for reproductive health services so that people who can become pregnant can access the care, whether it's abortion care, whether it's preventive care, whether it's access to contraception, you know, the whole range of options for people so that they can have self-determination over their own bodies. No, but you make a good point. Just any program that's for the public, if it's not broadcasted and shared through all the neighborhoods and all the groups, it's useless. Yeah. Did we really do it? Yeah. It just, yeah, it doesn't work. It's only hitting, you know, a small percentage of people that know about the program or have access to people that can educate them about the program. But for the people, as you said, that don't speak possibly English or... Or can take time off of work to go get three buses and, you know, wait in line. Yeah. I mean, we saw the same thing so tragically over the past two years with health disparities and COVID. We could put all the vaccines in a big pile over here, you know, at Gillette Stadium and say, equal access, everybody can come get one, right? But if you don't have four hours to wait, pressing the refresh button, you know, on your internet browser to get an appointment, you know, good luck to you. You know, if you don't have internet access, right, because you can't afford it, or you live in, you know, an area without broadband access, good luck to you. If you don't have somebody who can take time off of work to drive you to go to the appointment, you know, all of these things were huge barriers to people getting that critical care. Right, right. Your point to meaningful and strong, Senator. Thank you for that. Now let's move on. Talk about you. What is your next step, your next chapter? You know, it's it, it's funny. You're, a lot of people are asking me that question right now. And I was telling you, the honest to God answer, Lydia, is that I am not really seeing past September 15th or so. Right? Like mm-hmm. September 6th is the primary. I'm running through the tape for September 6th, you know, putting all of my energy and my weight behind these courage Democrats because I believe so fervently while we don't win every fight in politics, we, we can win enough to make it worthwhile being in the work. And there are critical issues at stake for the, the communities and the families and the people that I care about and that I've always been in this work for. So I'm laser focused on getting these courage Dems elected. And then I see like a week or so past election day because I am going to take a rest with my family. I've been running out of sprint for like 15 years now and we're going to take a, a much needed rest and recharge and then after that I will think about what's next for me. That's wonderful. I don't, do you have children? 
I do. They just had their birthdays, both of them this uh, past month. And so I have to adjust my, you know, reflexive naming of their ages. So they're now seven and nine. Wonderful. Good for you. You definitely should take some time off. My husband and my two kids have been such committed citizens, you know, in this project. They have been enthusiastic campaigners, patient with me as I have been, you know, more absent from their lives. And I really want to, you know, make sure we put some deposits back in the family bank. That's wonderful. You know, thank you so much for joining Bill New Boston and Beyond. And thank you for just taking the time to discuss these important topics with me. And I'm very pleased to share that with our listeners because it's so important. You made some, some points that are just so important about access and inclusion and transparency, but real transparency. People use that word all the time. Yeah, yeah. but there's, there's real stuff that we need to do on Beacon Hill to make it, to walk the walk, right? For starters, getting committee votes to be posted publicly, right? That's the basic stuff. This is something that I, I hope that these Courage Democrats will push for when they get into office for next year. So, you know, the fight continues. I don't think that I can stop doing movement building and justice seeking work if I tried. So we'll see, you know, what shape that t- takes from in the future. But I'm so tickled to be on the show. Lydia, thanks for having me. And these are really important issues to keep discussing. Visit buildingbostonandbeyond.com to get a glimpse of our future guests and the many ways you can follow us on social media. Join us next time to hear the latest topics of discussion in Boston and beyond.